baby. We back with a bang. It's the State of Combat podcast on CBS Sports with the Brian Campbell. I back. Trust me. I back. Thank you, Andy. We are, and it's mixed martial arts time all the time. UFC 241 week back to get you fired up about DC Stipe 2, the return of Nate Diaz, and so much more. All righty then. BC is the voice that you hear. Reminder, you like the show and I know you do. Spread it forward. Five-star review, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you consume the fine audio. Consume it, brother, because this syringe is overrunneth and ready for injection. Performance-enhancing audio coming your way. Our boy, the Hall of Famer, Rashad Evans on assignment this week. I want you to put it on me. I want you to try your best to put it on me because that's the only way I want it. I'll put it on you, you Rashad. Give me everything. All right, all right, all right, enough of that. Whoa, whoa, where are we going with that? Rashad is not here, but that tall drink of water, former All-State left tackle, North Boca High, Brandon Wise, back to face the pain. Wise man, how is it? It's going good, BC. You know, just another day in paradise down here, watching my streets flood as the storms roll through in the afternoons like they do every day in South Florida. Break out the red panties. We're rich, baby. All right. Yes, yes. No context whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> hey, did you hear that Boogie Woman's coming? I'm fired up for this. Boogie Woman is coming tomorrow. Yes, not tomorrow, but she'll be back. We'll get into that. We've got a lot of news to break down. We've got our video preview of UFC 241, the audio version later in the show. You can also catch the video version on YouTube. We are fired up. It's great time to be alive, Brandon. And just about that time to break down the weekend that was in the sport, UFC Uruguay, 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 no, it's your bowl. I don't, I I don't know people, there's pronunciation heads out there. Uh, But before we get to that, hey, why don't we pause real quick and hear a word from our friends and sponsors. Dig it. It's the NFL offseason, but on Pick 6, part of the CBS Sports Podcast Network, the football season never stops. Host Will Brinson, John Breach, and Tyler Sullivan are joined by analysts like Brady Quinn, Leslie Ducible, Katie Mox, and R.J. White to keep you in the loop on everything happening around the league. Whether it's free agents signing with new teams, the all-important NFL draft, or schedule release day, Pick 6 has you covered. As the face of the league changes with every team move and player pickup this spring, Pick 6 is a must Listen, download, and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, the Odyssey app, and anywhere podcasts are found. All right, and we're back. BCB Dubs coming at you. Yes, fired up. I'm underslept, undershowered, Brandon. The life of a superstar on the road. <laughs> but I made it for this podcast. I am ready. I, I may say a few inappropriate things by accident. Bear with me. But black folks love me, man. Black girls love me too, man. I get hit on by black girls all the time. All right, that's inappropriate. You know, I, there's no context. I, there's no appropriateness. There's just, there's just, it's just mayhem. It's nonsense. All right. I feel like we need to start the show today with you descri- describing to people how you almost got arrested at an airport in Charlotte. Yeah. So here's the deal. I sometimes, and my wife hates this part of me. She calls it the defense attorney that she didn't marry. She married me. She says, not this defense attorney alter ego. Do you know, like. Everybody's got that one um, 
thing they should have done in their life. You know, like people will go to the grave going, man, I should have should have went to that Yankees tryout when I was 19. You know what I mean? Like uh, uh, everybody's got an Al Bundy side to them. I should have been a, a, a defense attorney, a lawyer. I know it. I know it deep inside. Anyway, <laughs> I use those skills to outwit cable companies, cell phone providers. I will get that bill marked down, right? I will get that service for free. I will outlast and outwit, Brandon. It's a stamina thing. Who's willing to go in the deep end with me and come out alive? That's how I look at it. Because I think I've got more tricks up my sleeve, and I know I'll be here all night long. That doesn't work when you're arguing with people at an airport, apparently. (laughs) Because they threatened to put the cuffs on me in Charlotte over whether my secondary bag was a carry-on or a personal item. And, Brandon, I decided to go for it. I figured I was looking at my opponent, nice southern woman, but I figured I could outwit and outlast. And I was ready, and we went until that final second when they closed the door and you could miss the flight. And that's when they said, if you don't take one step forward, sir. We will cuff you and get you out of here. <laughs> I just don't I, like I want to understand the mindset that you have in these situations because you sound like Jeremy Piven in that movie where he's like a used car salesman and gets whatever he wants. But you don't always get whatever you want. You think you do. And then you almost get arrested <laughs> for trying to carry on two bags instead of one onto an airplane. Like I'm the boss. How I'm the boss. It's my way and no other way. End of story. You know? Here's what they didn't understand or, or, or under or get. I'm so close to becoming platinum, Brandon, but I pulled that sword early in the conversation and they didn't they didn't care. So we got down to brass tacks. I ba- they basically said because that bag has wheels, it can't be the equivalent of a large purse or a laptop bag even though I can fit that second bag under under the chair in front of me, when I attempted to remove the wheels in front of them, Brandon. Now, look, I'm not generally a bad person or an a-hole, but if you ever had, like, long travel days, you just kind of hit the end of your rope. You're, you're un- you had to have enough water or food. Like, these are dangerous times. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I've seen your personality on display when we were in Las Vegas where it doesn't go well with everybody. So I can understand this lady's pensiveness towards you where she just was like, get out of my face, get away from my terminal. You're not getting on this plane. Yeah, yeah. I learned a lot. I took an L. I took the L. Sometimes you got to take the L. Nick Costos on the wrestling show famously told us that, and it's words that you you eventually have to to live by. Take the L and admit you're wrong because you sound ridiculous. I, I was wrong. I was wrong. I told my wife the story. She's very, very unhappy with me. But why are we talking about this, Brandon? It's UFC 241 preview time, all right? Let's look back. UFC Uruguay main event, women's flyweight championship. Valentina Shevchenko whitewashes Liz Carmouche. But if a title fight happens on foreign soil off pay-per-view and it's really bad and barely anybody watches... And doesn't make a sound? Did it actually happen, Brandon? No. All it right. That, that's great analysis. Um, You're welcome. 
Whose fault? Who's at fault here? This five-round wide decision, Shevchenko, drops Karmush a couple times, took her down and slammed her to the ground, but this was an excitement-free performance. Who you, who's who's to blame? Uh, I got to say Liz Karmush here just because we kind of know what Valentina's style is at this point. She's not going to just go in for the kill. She needs somebody to stand in there and trade and, and let her get her opportunities at counter shots. So she's not going to just go in there guns blazing like we saw against Jessica I. It, it's Liz Carmouche who just didn't push the pace, didn't give any didn't give Valentina any reason to be worried in there. Like at what point did you realize in that fight you're like Oh, Liz just doesn't want to be here. She's already figured out I can't beat this girl, and I don't know why I'm yeah, still in this. You fight. nailed it. It was like midway through round one. I'm like, she's not trying to win. She's just trying not to get knocked out. So I don't get afterwards her comments, which said everything from "I'd like a trilogy," I feel like I could take the title from her, to "I really made her work with my movement." Like there were a lot of weird. Co- what fight was Liz Carmouche watching that we weren't? Question A and question B, certainly there's some blame that goes to Valentina. She allowed the opening two rounds to really go at a slow tactical pace in which she was trying to figure out Liz and didn't take many chances. When she did take chances, she scored the knockdowns that we talked about, Brandon. But I think even Chev, Chevy, we no, we could never call her that. That's lame, right? Bullet? (laughs) Valentina? Valley? Valet? Tina? All right, uh, I got to get off Instagram. Um, <laughs> what I'm trying to say here is that there was a point where she said, look, I've got more to protect here. Karmusha is not going to take me down. She's not going to get close enough to let her hands go because when she does, I spinning back fist her ass. So at some point, Shevchenko said, I'm going to pack up, take this five-round decision. I'm going to dance the night away, both inside the cage and in my hotel room afterwards on IG. And then I'm also going to get firearms and start shooting. I mean, she celebrates like a like a uh, like a urban movie theater. No. Jesus, that was dark. <laughs> that was that was a little weird. All right. Um, my point is this. It was a strong performance. She survived and advanced. Probably that's why it wasn't on a pay-per-view. Shevchenko can be exciting when Jessica is ready to run into traffic. She can give you. An interesting chess match like the Amanda Nunes rematch. But she wasn't looking to do anything but move on. And I can't necessarily blame her, Brandon. Why is that? She's got a title to protect. And people are now calling her, is she the Demetrius Johnson of the women's game? No, I don't think so. We've seen her be exciting. She can do things. And to Demetrius Johnson's credit, he actually was exciting the second half of his reign. He just was a guy that could never move the needle. I don't know if Valentina's Valentina's ever going to move the needle from a rating standpoint, but I don't think she's really trying to either. This is a sport to her. And she's the champion. She's in a weak division in which she's probably going to continue to be able to dominate. And some people had, let's say, took umbrage with... She did mention Mandy's name afterwards for a trilogy, but didn't like go crazy with the call out. I think she's going to end up getting that fight, Brandon, because there's no one for Amanda Nunes to fight with Cyborg away. So she's kind of doing the right thing. Carmusha's had one, four or five, but she wouldn't have been a title contender if this division had any depth to it. I'm done talking about this fight. 
Yeah, I, just a couple of notes I would say. You're right in that I don't think she's a needle mover per se. I would be curious to see what kind of ticket sales they did for this fight and if how much of that was related to this fight as opposed to something like the co-main event with Mike Perry and Vincente Luque. But I just – have you ever considered Valentina to be an exciting fighter? Because to me, like even her biggest fights – they weren't great tactical wars where she was in danger or her opponent were in, was in danger. Like even the Joanna fight earlier this year or last year, I can't remember now. It wasn't a great fight. It was interesting. It had interesting moments, but you don't remember it as being just like, oh man, this is exciting. I, I feel danger in both sides here. Yeah, I, I, she's technically brilliant. She's more comfortable as a counterpuncher. When she was at Bantamweight, she took far less chances because of the size difference she was facing against opponents. She is more aggressive largely at at uh, flyweight, in which she's really got got the power advantage and the technique advantage. But for the most part, she's not a stalker. She's not going to go do that. She did that in moments against Carmouche. She is who she is. But you know what she is? She's great, Brandon. She's right there behind Nunez in terms of the pound for pound best women today and in the short history and I and I hate that everything has to end up becoming well this was the 75th greatest performance in UFC history um she's gonna close in if she keeps up this pace as one of the better female fighters we've ever seen that's why I think you really need to get that trilogy fight with Nunez she came so close in the first two she's she's showing you all-time greatness here is what I'm saying but again, you take that with a grain of salt because the women's game is so early. It's so young. It's so young in the women's game, Brandon. All right? Very young. Like yes, like, like 19-year-old Brandon Wise on the prowl on a Saturday night. Just looking for young, right? That you made this weird. That got very Epstein-like. Let's move on <laughs> from here, Brandon. Uh, co-main event, Mike Perry made many a viral news for his disgusting broken nose, but really for his obscene levels of toughness. Brandon, this was on brand for the gangster because he fights like there's no tomorrow. And the fact that he was not tapped out by Vincente Luque in that third round after getting the knee to the nose, after being put in that guillotine and spilling dangerous levels of blood, he's a real man. I mean, you get tattoos on your eyelids, you're a real man. He's a real man. Eyebrow, but yeah, he. I, I can't not watch his fights. Like they're just always interesting. Like we just talked about how Valentina's fights aren't ever really like draw you in. Like oh man, there's danger here. Whenever Mike Perry is on my screen, I know something violent is going to happen one way or the other because that dude throws so hard. And when you're talking about MMA fights, it's hard to see that sometimes on the screen. But you can see when he's throwing hooks and, and straight punches that he's throwing as hard as he can. And you just know violence is going to follow that. And to his credit, he looked technically sound in those first two rounds. Like he was starting to get some rhythm to his shots. And I thought Luke looked a little bit uncomfortable. And then obviously, like you said, he land Luke lands that vicious knee that was intended for the chin lands flush on the side of the nose and <laughs> just pushes like four different bones oh, over to the other dude. side of his face. And by the way, I know that I've got a crooked nose that people love to point out in YouTube comments. I, I, <laughs> I think I broke my nose when I was like two years old. I got a pretty bad scar that's still there. 
Um, but this made this was the most uh, carnival nose in in the history of me seeing accidental broken noses in WWE and UFC. Like this is that was just gross. I mean, where do you sort of rate this? Because look, MMA brings out a a freak level of like like hanging broken arms and and just we've seen some gross stuff. Remember Cyborg Santos with that flying knee from MVP? Like uh, we saw the inside yeah. of his brain. Basically, you can see some gross things. Was this up there for you? Because for me, I, I wanted nothing to do with it after I saw it. I was like, oh, man. See, I <laughs> I made you write a recap off of that, and you were just telling me, like, I, I really don't. <laughs> you were just, like, at the point where you didn't even want to look at that picture anymore, and I was just kind of like, yeah, I, I get it. This is weird, but this is the sport I love because of this kind of weird levels of injury for some reason. Do you think Mike Perry had a case to have won that fight? Um... It depends, right? Because of the sc- the stupid scoring system that we currently have in place. It's like, do you give Luke a 10-8 for the injury and then the, and the dominance blood. in the end of that third round? Yes, you do. Or So then to me, that would mean if you gave Perry the first two and you're giving Luke a the last, is that a, is that a draw? Yeah, so you'd have to I, – I think people ended up giving Luke – which round of one or two was, Luke, was uh, Perry more dominant? I would say the first. First, okay, because they blow. They both got bloody early from the nose. I thought Luke yeah. pulled it more, pulled it closer. I scored it two to one for him. I wasn't scoring it second by second on on like I would a normal fight. I was it was more of a casual score, but still, when you add in the potential for the ten eight third round, I certainly had no issue with that scorecard. But man, Perry continues to build his case as one of those like can't can't miss guys, folk heroes. Gangsters, what would Jim Brown say about him? Ghetto man, and he fights in a ghetto way. Yeah, and, I, and you got to have people like that in your sport, and I love it. Do you have any other takeaways from UFC Uruguay? Because um, our girl, the Tiny Tornado, that's four L's in a row, brother. And she wasn't really in this fight at all. And I didn't see any form of, like, press the pace and go for it. I know that Tisha Torres is seemingly back with Rocky Pennington, so we can stop trying to play um, relationship experts through Instagram. But are you almost at the point where I'm like, hey, Tisha, like it, this might not be for you anymore? Yeah, unless they decide to open up a atom weight division uh, at 105 maybe and i don't even know how that could work in today's ufc with the way that they can't fill out two other women's divisions as it is i just don't know what's there for her to do anymore she's clearly not on the elite level she's not she's it's crazy to say but she's not physically big enough for the 115 pound yes. division right now and marina rodriguez like, who defeated her was a tall fly straw straw weight excuse me and uh really fought well like w- looked like a like a player unbeaten looked like somebody we should be watching closer but dude um she's small she has warning track power i think she was better early i mean she beat rose nama Yunus early in her career she was better early because of that gas tank but besides that one submission win man she doesn't finish people and she doesn't fight with an extra level of aggression yeah, I I just really honestly haven't seen it on a good level with her in a long time. I think that she was one of those first women in the sport, was able to take advantage of the, the timing of women's MMA in general, where she didn't have to have a complete game. She was able to just be able to, to outstrike and outpoint people. 
But now the game's caught up to her. And it's pretty clear that the evolution of women's MMA is just going to push people like her aside, as sad as that is to say. It is. She's only 29 years old. Three of those four losses. I mean, we don't know how good Marina Rodriguez will end up, but the other three were against Entrage, Boogie Woman, and Whaley Zong. So it's not like she's losing to, uh, you know, just anybody. She did beat Michelle Waterson her last victory. She has wins, like I mentioned, early on against the Paige Van Zants, the Rose Nama Yunus, Felice Herrick, Angela Magana, Angela Hill. But again, that was early on. All of those losses came before 2016. So it's going to be interesting where she goes next. I know you're, uh, no, I'll, I'll leave it right there. Uh, enough inappropriate comments for one podcast. Let's move. Anything else from Uruguay that you're taking home with you, Brandon? It's probably the end of the run for beefy Latifi as well. Vulcan Uzdemir comes back with a nice finish on, on my man. And I think. Would you say it's Vulcan... his biggest knockout since that Fort Lauderdale bar? Sorry to cut you off consistently here. <laughs> it's your favorite joke to make, I think. Um, I mean, he he was in desperate need of a win. You told me before that it might be cut and release time if Vulcan wasn't able to get a win over Beefy Latifi there. So good for him. He's probably going to get another top 15 opponent next. I don't know where you go if you're Ilir Latifi, though. It's another tough loss against higher elite competition, and he just didn't look like he had it. I feel like there's some sort of desperate cut coming to middleweight for him, and then and then the end of the line eventually. Please don't. I don't think he can make that, honestly. Like, he's built like a house as it is, but I, it's all muscle. Yeah. You know, it's not like, it's not like he's, he's like overweight or anything. So he's not, you wouldn't call him the Albanian DC. You wouldn't go that far. Oh, God. Him at heavyweight? That would be interesting. No, no. Uh, uh, by the <laughs> way, Vulcan did look good. And it's not that, it, I mean, he looked good against Dom Reyes in a close fight that he lost. Um, how about this for Crossroads matchmaking? I'm ready for this. Do you know the words that are about to come out of my mouth, Brandon? Vulcan, no time, Ozdemir against your carnival freak, Johnny Walker Red. Tell me that's not a hell of a good matchup. No, it's not a good matchup because Johnny Walker has already been booked for a fight. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago against Corey Anderson at UFC 244 in New York. Yeah, I don't, I don't often listen, but that's fine. Um, good win for Vulcan. Sent that man to hell and did it did it very sort of patiently, which was good to see out of him. All right, Brandon, let's check out the news cycle before we make this all things 241, but there's kind of a 241-related nugget here to start with. What do you got? Well, actually, I'm going to start in a different place because some news just broke as we were starting the show right now. Cat uh, Zingano has been cut by the UFC. Whoa! Yeah, that just kind of fell out of nowhere. Did not see that one coming. Do you know why I didn't see that coming? Because I always felt like with the lack of depth right now at Bantamweight and Featherweight because of Amanda Nunez's dominance. And by the way, people hate when I say Nunez. Am I supposed to say Nunes? Is that what I'm supposed to say, Brandon? Uh, I don't think that there's really a pre preference there. All right. Pretty sure it's Nunez. Well, we know Katzengano is the last person to have defeated Amanda Nunes. Nunez, and it feels like if she was just able to put together a couple wins, she probably would have ended up with a title shot. It's an interesting career here for for Kat Zingano, Brandon. 37 years old now. She was never able to capitalize upon that big stoppage win over Misha Tate. I mean, you, you, you can argue like, hey, BC, the year after that, she beat Amanda Nunez, but that wasn't the Mandy, the lioness that is today. What I'm saying is, 
Yes, she got the Rousey title shot after coming from behind to, to brutally finish Misha Tate, but she had the big injury before that. She obviously then lost her husband, which was a giant mental setback, then had the mental setback of the way in which she lost to Rousey in 14 seconds. Brandon, I still look back at that and say she had the right game, size, body type to potentially have given that prime Rousey some some issues if she didn't make that mistake early on. Am I crazy? I, I mean, I don't know. It's so tough to tell with her because her last was against Megan Anderson where she suffered the eye injury where the toe hit her square in the eyeball and she was forced to just give up basically because she couldn't see. And that was her moving up to 45 because they didn't really have any depth and she wanted to give it a shot and see how the weight class would feel. And we never really got an answer because that fight ended in 15 seconds with the injury. I feel like you might be onto something in that she could have made an interesting bout with with Amanda Nunez, but I don't know. I mean, it's been such a weird run for her, like you mentioned. And at this point in her career, she's 37. I don't think she's like Holly Holm in that she can compete at the elite no, level no. at this point. I, and look, I, I think she's clearly in decline as a fighter. I mean, I really saw that at UFC 200 when she came back after that long layoff after the Rossi lost and lost that decision to Juliana Pena where she just didn't have a lot of life to her in that fight. Um, it's just weird for somebody that had she beaten Me- Megan Anderson, she probably would have got a title shot off of that. Like, she legitimately probably would have got a featherweight title shot off of that, which certainly speaks to the obscene lack of depth in that division and obviously her backstory with Nunez. But she went into that Rousey bout having beaten Rocky Pennington, Misha Tate, and Amanda Nunez in succession. There was a time when she was somebody, and but her last big win was 2014. She was also somebody who you factor in, of course, the long injury layoff when she blew out her knee and all the stuff outside the cage. She also didn't evolve, though, at that same level as everyone else and was big and strong still somewhat early and wasn't able to translate that. I am surprised, though. I know she's lost four of her last five, but that's over a long period of time. I mean, the Rousey fight is the first one in that four or five. So I am a little bit surprised, given the lap of name value and depth, that UFC did not allow her to linger. Maybe there's other issues, maybe contract negotiations, all that stuff. Maybe they just decided to cut ties. But it's always a career they'll look back on and and say, what if? Because that Bantamweight, she she was a big girl who had some power and, and had some unique qualities to her game. Yeah, maybe sneaky right. hot too, but that's another conversation for another time, Brandon. What else you got in the news cycle for me? All right. Can I just point out that you're typically in your uh, house, your basement, staring at me with a bunch of pictures on the wall, and you're currently lounging in a in a work chair in a room somewhere in Stanford, Connecticut. What's your What's I'm your point saying. here? What, where are you, where are <laughs> you is, going with this? This is a really different BC I'm getting today than I normally get. Uh, I slept on a plane uh, last night. I haven't showered in at least 36 hours. What What do you want from me? All right. <laughs> all right. Anyway, Daniel Cormier and John Jones apparently still don't like each other. BC. I think this is breaking news, right? Yeah. John Jones, get your together. I'm waiting for you. So John Jones went on a Twitter. Not tirade, but he went on a Twitter rant talking about DC after DC made comments saying that I've gotten to the point in my career where I make where the UFC takes care of me on the front side. They're paying me a lot more money. 
I don't really need the Jones trilogy fight. Jones responds by saying, I've been the light heavyweight champion for almost my entire MMA career. Never have I moved up to challenge a heavyweight champion. I'm simply not interested in it right now. Never seriously have been. I feel like this the move is inevitable, but as of right now, I'm dominating fights and making weight just fine. Daniel and I, uh, Daniel and I not rev- reverie, but beef started at the light heavyweight division, and that's where it should end. Were Even though right I could have sworn was... I ended up once or twice, ended this once or twice already. Did you say confefi? I don't know what words just came out of your mouth in the middle of that. Um, I don't like this. This is the posturing of Jones now saying, I never really ever wanted to go up to heavyweight, even though you used to tease and brag about it, John Jones, all during your light heavyweight run back in the day. We all want this, including Dana White, this trilogy at heavyweight. They both wanted at 205. It's more of an advantage for Jones to see thick DC cut back down. Do you agree with DC wanting this at 205 so badly because he feels like the win over Jones would only truly matter if he went back to light heavyweight to do it when he knew both were clean, there was no drug issues and all that. I just look at Brandon physically, that can't be good for him to cut, and he would have somewhat of an advantage at heavyweight. So why not do that when you consider the history? That would be, I know I'm asking you a lot of questions without giving you a chance to answer, but a trilogy fight between the two of them at heavyweight I really argue could be the biggest fight in UFC history in terms of the meaning of it because John could become a two-division champion with a win and have three wins over Cormier, and Cormier could solidify his all-time great legacy, like maybe having a case for being the greatest could he beat Jones at heavyweight there and walk away with two titles on top. Like it's, I know he was already stripped from 205. You get my point, though. Um, it's, it's tough. Um, I don't see how DC can really cut that again. And at 40, where Jones will have still have that speed advantage, do any better than he did the first two fights. Here's the only thing I will say is that I don't understand what happens if DC does win a mythical bout with John Jones at light heavyweight. Does he just walk off in the sunset and say, see you guys, yes. I'm good with this win. It would but, be... John, but John Jones would try to get him back to do a fourth fight no. just to right <clears> the wrong. It would be very similar to Juan Manuel Marquez and Manny Pacquiao, who threw three fights, a, a draw, a close win for Pacquiao, and a controversial win for Pacquiao. Marquez was like, all right, I'll do it a fourth time. He roids up and knocks out Manny Pacquiao. Yeah, I said it. Okay. <laughs> And then he walks off and is like, I'm done. I won the rivalry. I proved that the judges were wrong each of the three times. I mean, you got to keep in mind, Juan Manuel Manuel Marquez always thought he won. Every loss he took, he thought he won. But the point is, DC has a similar gripe where he knows the second fight between them was a no contest. And DC still claims, Brandon, that that first fight, that the UFC and others didn't talk enough about John's at what he had of elevated levels. After that test before the first, you know what I'm talking about? DC has that whole thing mapped out in his mind where Jones was dirty for the first fight as well. So in his mind, if they finally fight clean and he wins it, he won the rivalry. I can understand that to a certain degree. I I don't. I really don't. On top of the fact that DC is the one who keeps saying he's never going to fight him again if he fails a test and all that garbage. And it's just like... I get all of what you're saying for history, historic and, and, and perspective and all that for a trilogy at heavyweight and why it would make sense. 
But I also do understand John at this point. It's like, why do I want to put my lanky legs in harm's way against guys who can bang at heavyweight right now? Like, why does he want to go in there with a Francis Ngannou who might take one of his legs off? <laughs> you know, like um, because you're the greatest of all time, John. And that is what is asked of you. Why were we saying, hey, Demetrius Johnson, you beat everybody twice at flyweight. It's time to go back up to Bantamweight and try to fight Dillashaw or Dominic Cruz at that time. It's because when you are the greatest of all time or you're in that category, more is asked of you. That's why we said, hey, Floyd Mayweather, end of your run. I know you moved up to junior middleweight to beat Cotto and Canelo. Maybe you should move up to middleweight. Like We ask this of the greats, Brandon. Because we want to see how truly great they are. This, I don't think this is asking so much. I, look, I don't want, I don't say that ignorantly. Yes, moving up to face Francis and Ghana or even Stipe is a challenge. But Brandon, I think John Jones wins every single matchup with maybe the exception of DC at heavyweight. You think he would beat all the guys at heavyweight right now except DC? I think DC is the only one where I'm not really sure that he would. But you think he would beat Francis, um, yes. Curtis Blades. Um, Do you realize um, a couple things here? All right. Why is DC having a ton of success right now at heavyweight? Yeah, because he's smart and he's an all-time great, but he's smaller. He's got quick hands. He obviously has the girth and strength and could fall back on his wrestling. But who are the greatest heavyweights in UFC history? Guys with the same body type who are a little bit small, like a Randy Couture, uh, Cain Velasquez, and we, we relied more, Brandon, on things like cardio and hand speed than on the traditional idea of a heavyweight who's going to go in there and grind you and knock you out. I think John's speed would be insane at heavyweight. And when you consider that he naturally has reach advantages, probably against every single heavyweight because he's a freak uh, in terms of his body size, the proportions athletically. I say proportions knowing you're, what you're thinking. I'm not going in that level. Um, I'm just talking about like the size of his legs. Brandon, I know that his chin would be in, in question at all times against those guys. That's what you do when you're the GOAT. You go up there and you take the chance. I think he would outstrike circles around these guys. And he does have the wrestling to back it up. And, Brandon, how? what do you think John Jones would look like a little bit more jacked? I mean, to me, okay, so here's the difference, though, like you were saying. DC looks better because he's healthier. DC's at 240 where he's not cutting incredible amounts of weight just to get to 205 and then get back to whatever the next day. John, right now, like he said, this is a natural-ish weight for him at 6'4". Like, if John decides to go to heavyweight, what do you think he's walking in the ring at? Like, as a normal weight, 225? Yeah, I think he should come in a little bit light with the idea of using speed as a monster advantage. You want to be strong enough for the clinches and the wrestling game? But you want to be quick enough. Speed would be his calling card, Brandon. I understand all that. But I also would have, like you said, major questions about his chin holding up against the super heavyweights that we're seeing right now that are 250, 260. Like, man, I told you before that my fate, my most intriguing fight to make at this point, fantasy matchmaking, is Francis against John because I want to see, one, if John's chin can hold up against the power like that because we've seen Francis take the heads off of elite heavyweights in the recent years 
I don't know if that's going to still be there in a couple of years if John decides to do this and if Francis keeps going on the run that he's got. I also don't know what John comes in physically looking like because John, remember when he was on, when he was out with the suspension and he was doing all those deadlift videos and like posting his workouts and stuff, how he was like deadlifting 500 pounds. His legs still weren't huge. He was still pretty small when it came to the rest of his frame. He was just building out more chest muscles and arm muscles. I don't know if he would need enough time to make himself feel more physically complete to go to heavyweight. I, to me, he needs at least a year of just working on building his frame out instead of just right now saying, all right, I'm going to heavyweight at where I'm at, where I'm at right now physically. Well, that's fair. The idea that a better version of him at heavyweight would be taking time to put the weight on I could, and the muscle. I could, I could fully agree with that, but I don't know, dude. I, it would be great theater. It would double down on his greatness. I mean, I think, look, like we talk about that greatness category a lot. There's still some people who think GSP is the greatest of all time. There's still some people who think Anderson Silva is. Jones, if he goes up and wins the heavyweight championship, would like put that kind of like MJ distance. You know what I'm saying? Like he'd put that Wayne Gretzky distance. He would put that kind of thing where it's like, no, dude, that's the dude. That's the guy. Okay. It's everybody else after that guy. I think you just have to do that. And man, dude, you know how smart John Jones is? You know the fighter he's evolving into? Heavyweights aren't historically known for being strategists, all right? That's part of why Daniel Cormier is doing There's a gap there. I mean, a lot of these heavyweights are just big Goliaths, okay? Damn, that just works to me, Brandon. I could be fat. I could not have a six-pack. But my dick works. <laughs> my dick works. A lot of things working right now. Um, Speaking of that. You ever notice John Jones on Instagram? I called him. Uh, I do this show on Mondays called uh, Morning Combat on, on Below the Bell on Showtime. I don't know if you ever heard of it. Uh, but I made the, pro the the thing that John Jones is one of my favorite Instagram followers because he says things he probably shouldn't. He talks trash with fighters. He answers fans' questions honestly. And people are like, no, he's not a great follower. Do you see the thirsty comments sometimes, John Jones? Do you? I don't know if you follow Nadia Kasim on, on Twitter. You know that Australian female fighter? <laughs> She posts some like scantily clad photo. John jumping right in with the thirsty comments there. I'm just this is me reporting the truth, Brandon. All right. <laughs> this is our intrepid reporter who just follows people on Instagram and reports back comments. It is a beautiful aroma that arouses me. All right, we got to move away. The we got to move away from this. What else you got in the news cycle here, bro? Okay, it's almost two forty one time. Do you want to well, okay I'll give it I'll give you the option. Do you want to talk about Frankie Edgar moving to bantamweight or do you want to talk about Henry Cringe Cejudo calling out Valentina Shevchenko? Uh yeah, Frankie Edgar's moving it's the right move. There's nothing else <laughs> to say about that. Um hey Cringe Master, can you stop this Henry Cejudo garbage calling out Shevchenko her responding? Yeah, like, uh, like, stop. It's never going to happen. We don't want it to happen. We don't need to. Look, the only time that conversation ever made sense to crossover people, not fight fans like us, not real people who get it. But when Rousey was so dominant with her jujitsu, where people didn't realize that she was doing it at such an early stage of you, the, the development of UFC's women's fighters, where like, she was doing it against a lot of people who didn't have knockout power, who didn't have a ground game even remotely close to her. Her world-class technique and her strength was dominant. Where then we're saying, well, what would she look like against Floyd Mayweather? Oh, my God. If she could duck the first punch, she could easily take him. And by the way, that's a crap argument, but it does work for first take. It does work for ignorant crossover America arguments. There's no argument here between world-class cringe master Henry Cejudo and Chef Ch Like, stop this, Brandon. 
I think we need to make that voice a new character on the show where you just start doing things and trying to sound like a an insider who's not actually an insider. Yes, thank you. All right. <laughs> all right. <sighs> I, I don't want to talk about it anymore, all right? Henry, Henry Cejudo, heal up, get back in the, in the cage, all right? Hey, did you watch uh, ESPN E60's uh, Daniel Cormier profile at all that Ariel Hawani put out there? I did see somebody's uh, giant face on my screen a couple of times. I don't. Yeah, I, I didn't thought, really recognize him. It was though. a good show. It needed a little bit more Campbell in it, though. But it was a good show. <laughs> it was. A, it was a good show. There, uh, they did well done. No mention though in that about uh, why DC moved down to two hundred five. Did it for his friend, right? No mention of that in there. That was a little weird. But um, um, maybe but, because that guy didn't want to talk about it. That's probably true, right there. Uh, your boy Anthony Smith, by the way, he's not fighting anytime soon, right? Nope. Had another hand surgery. Will not fight again until 2020 at the earliest. Even though you've started to come around on Anthony Smith after that Alexander Gustafson fight. Did I really? Yeah, you did. You told you told me on this show that you thought he actually looks like a legitimate 205 fighter now. I might have to take that back. No, you're right. You're right. You're <laughs> right. That's a setback. We'll see him get back in there. Um, All this Johnny Walker talk that we do offline. It's getting me really excited to see how, like, to see how good he actually is. Like, I really want to see how good he can be. I really want to see him against. I mean, against a super elite. I'm ready. I'm ready for this. I'm ready. Before we get to 241 talk, what fight that has been booked lately are you most excited for in the next three months before the end of 2019? Oh, let's say it. UFC Tampa, brother. You're gonna be there. <laughs> you better be there for it. Joanna Young Jacek coming back against Michelle Waterson. I love that fight. Boogie Woman is coming tomorrow, and she doesn't know who's coming. Somebody's coming. I mean, I don't know if you've been following her on Instagram, but um, Brandon, this is a great fight. I can't wait to see it. It's going to be a really good show. I, I'm waiting to see if they're going to just make that the main event because they haven't really decided that yet. But Mackenzie Dern is also going to be on that card coming back in her first fight since giving birth to their first child, what, like four months ago? Yeah, she's one tough mother, Brandon. That's for damn sure. And before we go to our preview stuff, they announced this morning officially UFC DC on December 7th. Are you ready for this? Is that DC as in Daniel Cormier? No, that would be uh, the District of Columbia, sir. Alistair Overeem. Versus Walt Harris in a main event fight on ESPN. No, no, no. And, and Stefan, the skyscraper Struve, fresh off of his two month retirement, fighting Ben Rothwell. Uh, no. Right now, there is not a man in this planet that can stop me inside this octagon, and only politics can slow me. I don't have much left to say other than you have seen nothing yet. <laughs> nothing is what I will see. Let me find something else to do that night. Sorry, DC fans. Hey, isn't there a Boston card coming up? That's in my backyard. Get me fired up. Who's on that one? Uh, that's the one with Chris Weidman and Dom Reyes. I like it. do some more quick research before we go. But that I think they also announced Oh, Boston Salmon is going to be on that card. Boston Salmon, not moving me. All right, thank you. All you right, you don't remember getting excited about that guy? No, I, I, what, the name's the name is not catching me off. Who is that guy? 
He's the he's a Hawaiian prospect. He was fighting at oh, was he on the contender se- the Dana White series? I think so, and I think he was. Oh, he was at the Atlanta card that you were at in April. Yes, the he was on the undercard and got knocked out in the first round after yes. they tried to hype him up as like a big prospect. Yes, I remember that Atlanta card. One of the best nights of my life. Adesanya. Oh my god, I had a fight against Gastelum. Middleweights. I'm the new dog in the yard. And I just all over this cage. Don't- Oh, what 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 did he do all over? What did he, wait? What Brandon? What did he actually say? <laughs> no comment. No comment. All right, enough enough of this crap banter. Let's preview UFC 241 coming at you right now. Enjoy it. Saturday night should be quite all right for fighting when UFC 241 invades Anaheim, California, and the State of Combat podcast on CBS Sports has you covered with a detailed preview. My name is Brian Campbell, the Hall of Famer Sugar Rashad Evans on assignment this week, but my sidekick in crime is that big tall drink of water you're looking at from Fort Lauderdale, Brandon Wise and B-Dubs. We're talking... Maybe not International Fight Week, maybe not a traditional UFC Super Bowl card, but certainly one we circled on the calendar and one when you're talking about Daniel Cormier, Stipe Miocic too, and you're talking about the return of Nate Diaz, quite possibly one I'm even a little bit more excited about than any this calendar year. Definitely. I mean, when we looked at this card on the top end, it is as good, if not better than 239 in International Fight Week, just because... You have so much parity in those three fights. Like you mentioned, Daniel Cormier and Stipe Miocic, Nate Diaz, Anthony Pettis, and Paulo Costa and Yoel Romero. Even the betting lines tell you enough that they're that close. So, yeah, I don't know if I'm more excited, but I'm definitely just as excited as I was for UFC 239. And if you are listening to the audio version of the State of Combat podcast in our UFC 241 preview, a reminder to check out this video version on YouTube. But B-dubs. Let's get right into it right off the top. It is that heavyweight title rematch. Many ways, that's the attraction. Those are the two big names on the marquee when Daniel Cormier defends his title against Stipe Miocic. You have to go back to last July, summer of 2018, UFC 226, first round knockout by Cormier to really secure MMA immortality, if you will, become the rare two-division champion. You can argue some things have changed for DC since then. Not much has changed for Stipe. He has sat out the full 13 months, thought maybe Brock Lesnar would get this spot ahead of him. But here we are back again. From your perspective, how different are these fighters? How different are we 13 months later? I think that the difference here is really age because I know that we talk a lot about how old Stipe is, or not how how old DC is at now he being 40 and he was planning on retiring in March earlier this year. But Stipe's 36 himself, so the only difference I think you're going to see is maybe a little bit slower speeds when it comes to kicks and strikes in general, but I don't think anything really has changed between these two. I still think right now they're probably the two best heavyweights in the UFC, and that this could deliver the kind of rematch that we think about and talk about among the best heavyweight fights in UFC history. Yeah, it's certainly so much at stake here from the idea of legacy. You said, you know, probably the two best heavyweights in UFC right now. I could just as easily argue, Brandon, maybe the two greatest UFC heavyweight champions in history. If DC wins this, 
You very much could cement him. You could crown him Dennis Green and call him the GOAT from the heavyweight champion perspective when you consider he's 15-0 and as a heavyweight, sandwiched around that very impressive run as the light heavyweight champion, feuding with John Jones. Of course, that'll be the first line of his legacy, of his resume, when DC finally does hang it up. But we know heavyweights age later. At 40 years old, he comes into this one, the rematch, as the betting favorite, the underdog the first time around, First-round knockout, I'm not sure many of us would have predicted it that way, but such a clinical, smart performance in the end. And I don't think it's hyperbole to mention exactly what I just did. He wins this, Daniel Cormier. You could probably call him the greatest, the best, the most decorated, because really outside of this first fight against Miocic, we haven't seen DC face any form of adversity at a heavyweight. His impressive victories over the likes of Frank Mir, Josh Barnett, Bigfoot Silva – these were dominant one-sided showcases. You have any problem with that, with calling him the best if it, if it goes this way on Saturday? Does it matter to you how he wins it, though? Because I think the shock value of that first win being a first-round knockout that we just didn't – nobody thought that would happen. Like, we thought Stipe would be outbox him on the feet and then DC would take it to the ground. But if this fight plays out differently – where Stipe is able to actually wrestle a little bit with him. He's able to actually take a little bit of dominant position away from DC that he's not used to dealing with. Do you think that that changes it? Because to me, if Stipe looks better in this fight and is actually able to take this to a decision one way or the other, if it's a split decision, unanimous decision, whatever, I think that helps DC's case a little bit because there is a little bit of fluky nature to the first-round knockout, even though, as DC has mentioned many times, that... There was a cerebralness to his studying of, of Stipe and how he was able to, to land that knockout punch that he knew once he pushed away from the clinch, he could land the shot because he leaves, him, he leaves himself open a lot. But if this goes to a decision and is a five-round grueling fight, I think that helps his case more than just scoring a quick submission or a quick knockout. Yeah, it would be hard to take anything for away from DC if he ends up with two victories on his resume over Miocic, who, like I mentioned, came into last year's first fight had already set the record for most title defenses by a heavyweight champion in UFC history with three, was really looking to cement himself with that same title. One year later, yes, Miocic hasn't fought, but he's been fighting fires. He's been doing his thing. DC said he's been a little bit of a brat, sort of complaining that there'd been previous UFC champions who had lost with less title defenses and got the immediate rematch. He wasn't initially going to get that. Brock Lesnar decides to walk away. Well, here we are. Thank Thank goodness, by the way, did not need to see Brock Lesnar coming off of a long layoff and a positive steroid test. Talk about in BC editorial right here. I think we have the fight that makes sense. I would argue to say that Miocic certainly does deserve this rematch. So when we talk about what's changed in a year for DC, well, we know he came back last November and had that title defense. Quick turnaround, New York City against Derek Lewis, but then sort of had that under-the-radar back surgery in late December, Brandon, where DC comes out of this saying, I feel great now. I feel better than ever. I'm quicker. I can move. And I think that may have been a big part in him pushing past that original deadline of March, his 40th birthday, where he said he wanted to have his career all wrapped up and done. I know his comments leading up to this fight about what could be next if he wins have been a little bit at times cryptic, maybe at times hypocritical. We all know he wants the trilogy with John Jones. We all know should he lose this fight against Miocic, you certainly could make a trilogy with Stipe. But I think when you talk about heavyweights aging later and you look at what DC is right now, I see no reason where the age 40 matters in this fight. And I see no reason where he doesn't come in even better than he was one year ago. See, the only part of that that I will disagree 
is that before that Derek Lewis fight in November, he also had a hand injury. That was like the reasoning that he wasn't going to take that fight at MSG to be the headlining event there as the heavyweight champion was because he said he couldn't he couldn't close his hand. So and then you add in this this like cryptic back surgery as you mentioned. How do we know he's not dealing with something now? Honestly, because these guys hide injuries all the time. There's always something in camps that happen where they don't let anything out to the media, anything out to the public. I to me the 40 year old mark. Just mark to me means there's more chance of something being wrong physically going into this fight. He certainly has said all the right things about how ready he will be. That first fight, certainly we, we nailed it off the top there. It was a surprise the way it ended. Second time around, I think you have to believe and, and assume that Steve Miocic is going to right some wrongs and that this is going to be a much closer, much more competitive fight. And a fight that probably goes longer distance, if not the full distance, Brandon, because Stipe Miocic is the real deal from the idea of a guy who has knockout power in both hands, has a strong wrestling base, but it's shown you at times he can come back from adversity. He can get rocked and fight through. He can secretly tap out at UFC 203 to Alistair Overeem. Joke, joke, Stipe didn't tap. Or did he, Brandon? Story, news at 11. But the whole point is Stipe is the real deal, and let's not forget what did happen during the four-plus minutes of that first fight. We remember the knockout. But Stipe was landing bombs in the lead-up to that because we know DC style at heavyweight. He's going to come in thick with two or three Cs, your choice, and he's going to try to crowd you and clinch. But he's going to have to pay the price to earn that real estate. And the first fight, Brandon, ha- having watched that at cage side, I'm starting to get a little nervous for DC when Stipe was lighting him up a bit with those big shots and making him pay for getting close enough. You have to believe that threat is still there in a big way where Stipe can end this fight at any point. Yeah, I think that's something that you actually noted was that DC said the fight was even in that first fight. In the first round of that fight, it was even. They were both landing bombs on each other. And I think that, like you said, the reach advantage might be the biggest factor here when you look at a side for Stipe because if he's able to keep that jab out in front and block and prevent DC from getting inside and getting in those to the dirty boxing, then that might play more into Stipe's favor where he's able to keep the distance and he's able to land some of those big leg kicks like he landed against Junior Dos Santos. A stat for you, though, that I saw this morning on Twitter, just, just for you. Ex-champions fighting in rematches, in immediate rematches for the title... 0-5 since 2012. 0-5. Wow. wow. So that helps your argument for DC that you have been making all week. Just a little heads up for you. <laughs> Who are we talking about? Uh, Cody Garbrandt? Cody Garbrandt. Joanna. Uh, John Jacek against Rose Namajunas. Jose Aldo, even though he was an interim champion against Max Holloway. Um, obviously, Anderson Silva against Chris Weidman. And then Frankie Edgar against Benson Henderson. Well, look, when you look at that first fight, there's no question, like we said, Stipe had moments. He landed some big shots. I thought the tide sort of turned midway through that first round because the first couple of minutes, even when Cormier forced the clinch, you had Mayochich almost overpowering him physically, getting in the underhooks. At one point, he spun DC around and was almost doing those, those strikes from behind like Brock Lesnar did against Frank Mir in that rematch. I thought DC turned it around when he found the perfect distance for him and it really started to work that jab and make the face of Miocic red, slow him down just a bit, and then set up the distance for the one-two. And, of course, we know what DC basically predicted ahead of that first fight. 
that Stipe Miocic exit the clinch with his hands down, and there is an opening there to end the fight, and he hit that. This time around, though, I'm expecting a smarter Stipe Miocic. I'm also expecting something we didn't see in the first fight, Brandon. Wrestling. We didn't really see it at all in the first fight. And when you compare the wrestling games of the two, I mean, we know Daniel Cormier's resume as an All-American at Oklahoma State, as an Olympic captain. He has an advantage here against Stipe. Do you think he'll need to use it? Do you think he should use it? I definitely think he's going to need to use it this time around. I think Stipe is going to come in with a much smarter game plan where he's trying, like we talked about before, trying to keep the distance away and trying to keep Daniel on the outside. And when he does that, he's going to force Daniel to have to try and shoot in for takedowns and get this fight to where he has the biggest advantage. So I think he's going to need to use it. I think he will be able to use it. But I still don't know if it's going to be the deciding factor or not because I think in my prediction, I would say Stipe keeps this on the on the feet for probably three of the five rounds. Now, it's a matter of if, D, if DC can make use of those two rounds in the fight where he's able to take advantage on the ground and land those strikes or land a, lock in a submission. So to me, I think it's it's going to be a factor, but I don't know if it will be the deciding factor. I think you have to remember, look, it was a little bit of a tightrope walk for DC in that first fight. He walked into Miocic's strength, which is essentially boxing, and beat him at his own game, but had to sort of negotiate danger like we talked about coming back. He's going to have to have a much better balanced attack, I think, the second time around. We're going to see a hungrier, smarter Miocic. We're also going to see Sipe on a 13-month layoff, and I think this is where the wrestling is going to come in key for DC, to get Sipe down, tug a little bit of that gas tank, set him up, for an, an easier sort of ending on the feet when he has a gassed out, potentially steep in Miocic. We've seen Miocic go five rounds in the past, but he certainly had to get over that initial hill that cost him in the first fight with Junior Dos Santos before he really established himself as having championship cardio. That seems to be an opening for Cormier. That's why I think this fight goes the distance ultimately, but I think Cormier wins this. Somewhat convincingly, Brandon. He'll have moments where he's going to have to dodge and be smart on the feet in the boxing but I think he's going to win this fight on the ground over time. Not ragdoll Miocic, but control him. Maybe even with ease at times. Your prediction. That's interesting. I really think that this is going to come down to Stipe's chin again. He's been quote-unquote chinny in the past. He was knocked out by a clean hook in the first fight. That didn't. It didn't seem to draw a ton of power. It was just an inside dirty boxing, like we talked about, shot that dropped him. And if his chin holds up, I think he's got more than a puncher's chance. I think he's shown us in the last five fights that he's taken, he has the game plan and he has the power. Now, it's a matter of what happens with DC in this fight because, as our buddy Rashad likes to say a lot, when you're not cutting weight down as much, you're able to be hydrated more and you're able to keep the water around the brain more. That helped DC, I think, in the first fight where he wasn't cutting that drastic amount of weight that he used to get to 205. I think if his chin holds up, that's going to be a lot better for him. But as we talk about all the time with heavyweights, it's really rock'em, sock'em robots if you're doing just straight boxing and kickboxing in this sport. And it's a matter of who's going to fall first. And this time, I, I'm just leaning Stipe. I think Stipe is going to be able to wow. pull this out. I think probably a third-round knockout will will be able to finish DC. Can Stipe win this fight without a knockout? I don't see the opening for him. Do you? I, I, I think you're right on that. I don't think he can win a decision in this because I think if this goes to a decision, 
that will mean that DC was able to get this fight to the ground and control it and be able to just suck the life out of him. I think Stipe is probably the hardest competition DC is going to see in this era at heavyweight, unless John Jones moves up. Maybe unless Cain Velasquez is ever able to get himself back healthy. And obviously, of course, if DC and Cain ever decided to actually mix it up in a real fight, which their friendship sort of obviously led DC down to 205 to begin with. But this is Daniel Cormier's time in my eyes, Brandon. He's too quick at this weight class. The combination of being small and robust and large, but having that explosiveness and having that mind, it's going to be interesting it's almost like an, an evolved Randy Couture 2.0 as a heavyweight with even more danger, even more smarts, even more explosiveness. Very interesting. But look, Brandon, we got to go on to this co-main event. And you could argue this is the real people's main event, not just because it's a great matchup in Nate Diaz and Anthony Pettis, because it screams name value, because it certainly screams the expectation of action. But look, we're here to see Nate Diaz. He should be, his face should almost be on the front of the poster because there's so much intrigue three years later, somewhat fresh off of the two fights against Conor McGregor because he never fought again, but it almost seems like in an era ago from what has happened since then. Straight up, how fired up are you just to see what Nate looks like this many months and years later? At this point, I'm in the Nate Diaz fan club. I think that it's become almost, I don't even know what the right word is to describe it. It's like he's got a cult following of fans at this point who no matter what he does, he's going to, he's going to have somebody there watching him because it's never uninteresting. He shows up at, at international fight week and for some reason is sat next to Khabib who we know he has beef with. And of course something was said and they almost got into a fight before security broke it up. But that's just who Nate Diaz is. He's always a fun character no matter what. Even if he's losing, he's fun because he's flipping the bird to his opponent just because why not? It's the third round. Let's just go do this thing. Yeah, we talk about how red hot Jorge Masvidal's brand is right now because he's so damn real in a sport, mixed martial arts, that certainly borrows from pro wrestling from a promotion point of view. Boxing does the same thing where sometimes when you're borrowing pro wrestling tactics to promote fights, real fans could see through a little bit of that and say, okay, we're selling beef here. This isn't real beef. Jorge Masvidal showing you he's real, but he's almost a poor man's version of what Nate Diaz has established as a counterculture icon, as a guy who just being true to his own beliefs and, and, and almost never selling out has become this star. Obviously, it certainly helped his brand to go through two fights on the pay-per-view level with Conor McGregor and split them, having both fights been classics, both fights coming close to really breaking UFC pay-per-view records that established him as a star. I can give you a five-minute editorial on how UFC has failed in the follow-up since then to do anything with him when he's the perfect B-side and potential villain for any up-and-coming rising name. Obviously, there's been problems between Diaz and Dana White from from just signing a fight, from just making this happen, whether they don't offer him enough money or he's turning down fights like Dana says. We should have saw Nate against Dustin Poirier last November. Dustin got injured. That fell through. Nate says Dustin pulled out on purpose. Whole different social media drama there. But as long as he steps foot in that octagon Saturday night, the Nate Diaz show is back on again at 34 years old. And it certainly has got questions. But I almost feel like, Brandon, no one's talking about what the three-year layoff could look like and do to him. We just saw Conor McGregor fresh off a two-year layoff. Yes, in the mean, in the middle of that, he did box Floyd Mayweather. 
But he talked afterwards. Yes, that layoff was a problem. I needed warm-up fights that I didn't take. Are we overlooking, or do we just look at Nate as this weird, unique superhero where three years, who cares? Is it that we're overlooking it, or is it just that people don't want to notice it? <laughs> you know, it's like people are just so excited that he's back. It's almost like who cares kind of mentality. But like you're saying, three years is an eternity in MMA, especially with the way that the fight has evolved. Just think about what the sport looked like in 2016 and look at it now where you've got like just prototypes being built like Zabit Magomed Sharapov at 145 and he's six feet tall and he's just another type of fighter. Nate Diaz now, he's 34. I mean, to me, that's the bigger question on top of the three-year layoff. He's older now. He's and he's in a more friendly weight class for him, being at 170 now instead of trying to cut to 155. But the layoff is has a lot of question marks in it. And my hope is that this fight actually looks the way that it should. It's not an, a tentative Nate. It's not a waiting to see what Anthony Pettis wants to do Nate. I hope it's the same guy that we saw three years ago against against Conor McGregor, who just pushes the pace, sees an opening, goes for it, throws some Stockton slaps in there. And we see just a brawl. I know. The Diaz brothers can win big fights when they're not supposed to. You can argue and have a separate conversation on whether they ever get it done when they are supposed to at the highest level when the pressure's on. But we talked about the questions facing Diaz. I look at similar questions for Anthony Pettis at this point. I question whether there's a bit of fool's gold in what we're seeing in this resurgence. Because the truth is, Brandon, Pettis is alternated wins and losses going back something like eight fights up to this point. And while certainly got a lot of attention for that comeback knockout against Stephen Thompson after moving up to welterweight, he almost lost every second of that fight through two and three quarter rounds before recording that win. I don't know what I'm seeing right now from Anthony Pettis. He's exciting. He's not afraid to have action moments. His fight with Tony Ferguson was a borderline fight of the year in which he dropped Ferguson. But Brandon, I'm seeing a guy who's not really complete in there. He loads up and waits for the big moment. Sometimes that big moment comes, like against Thompson. But I think he's got just as many, if not more, questions. Because, yes, Nate's been off for three years. But we know he's doing triathlons. We know he's active. We know he's sparking up a little bit. We know he's doing some things. Who do you have more fear in that they're maybe not who we think they are entering this fight? I still go with Nate just because we've seen Anthony kind of evolve in the last few years, right? You, you What you mentioned is true and that... He's waiting and he's, he seems to be tentative to throw those heavy shots that he looks for those knockout moments. But at the same time, we saw him evolve against Michael Chiesa where he fought a guy who is only a submission specialist and got him to tap out. He fought Anthony uh, against Steven Thompson. And while he did lose those first few rounds, he did find a way to get the win and get the vicious knockout. So to me, I think that Nate has a lot more questions to answer, especially in the fact that he's not really a knockout artist. That kind of, to me, gives me more faith in Anthony because he's not going to have to worry about the random bomb that's going to drop him and knock him out. He's going to be able to stand in there in the fire and eat some of those shots that Nate throws while still being able to counter. So to me, I have more questions about Nate than I do Anthony in this fight. All right. The one thing you can say, though, is big business ahead for Nate potentially if he wins. Obviously, will the, will the UFC take that his brand seriously and push it to the level that maybe he deserves. But if he wins, we're obviously talking about a Conor McGregor trilogy. We may be even talking about him as a real title contender at both lightweight and welterweight should, again, UFC want to cash in on that brand. I say that because there's plenty at stake here. Three-round fight. 
We're going to see action, of course, because that's who Pettis is right now. I'd like to see Nate Diaz bring back more of his ground game, though, something he didn't use at all in the two Conor McGregor fights. And I think if he does, he can win a decision here. He can look good doing so, and he can move on to even bigger business ahead. I like Diaz by decision. What's your prediction? See, I feel like that's you being clouded by the fact that you're seeing all the bright lights and flash after this fight where what's possible to come after it. But to me, when you're looking at the tactics of it, I just don't see how Nate is able to solve the puzzle for of Anthony. I think Anthony's going to look much sharper, much quicker, and he's going to throw something we haven't seen before. And I think that if he throws it and lands it, like one of those tornado kicks and they he catches Nate clean, we're talking about a guy who is now entering into that top five class at welterweight, which is already crowded enough as it is. I don't think Nate Diaz is close to a title fight with a win here. I think he needs to fight at least two or three more times. And I think Anthony, if he's if he's spectacular enough, he might enter that pantheon. Well, whether it's a title fight or not, if Nate wins, there's some fights that are equivalent to title fights from the idea of money and exposure. And that's certainly Conor McGregor. It's certainly Tony Ferguson. It's certainly Jorge Masvidal. So plenty of big business ahead, for obviously, for both guys. But I got to get you and your thoughts on this middleweight clash that you could argue, if we're coming to this card to see Nate Diaz, the real hardcore fans fight that they need to see and find out who's the real, is this middleweight bout between Yoel Romero and Paulo Costa. Wow. You want to talk about two chiseled specimens. That's another conversation for another day. But these are two violent fighters, and it's very interesting because at 42, Yoel Romero has not slowed down, has not showed you that he's still not that explosive force, has gotten very close to a world championship, has had issues on the scale, lost two very close decisions to current champion Robert Whitaker. I think certainly that second fight, you can make a great argument in Yoel's case. But Brandon, this is a tough measuring stick for unbeaten Paulo Costa, the Brazilian, to find out if he is for real. Romero enters at 42 as the betting favorite. How do you begin to unravel and unpack this fight? Because it screams intrigue. See, you called the Nate Diaz-Anthony Pettis fight the people's main event. This is the me main event because... I love both of these guys so much, and I've been looking forward to this since they even started discussing this a few years ago. I think that this is going to be a classic wrestler versus striker showdown. Even though Yoel hasn't really had to show his wrestling in the last few fights against the likes of Robert Whitaker and Luke Rockhold, he's done more with his striking and, and kickboxing. I think he's going to have to take this fight to the ground if he's going to be successful because Paolo is just too big. Like when you look at the specimen that we have that were that are in the UFC at this point, this dude is six one. He's listed at one eighty five for the weight class, but he definitely regularly walks around to over two hundred pounds because he's just all muscle all the time. And I think that Joel is going to have to get him down and try to burn out those arms and burn out those legs if he's going to have any success because Paulo loves to just get into a brawl you just look at that Uriah Hall fight and just watch how many shots he throws before Uriah finally has to fall and, and collapse on his shield because the power is just so immense and he can just end a fight on short notice no matter where where the circumstances are out of any fight on this card this is the one I've had the biggest trouble picking I've been back and forth constantly you mentioned though Romero's wrestling game which is elite world-class you get why he's the betting favorite coming in. But here's the deal what Yoel Romero does. And for this scenario to play out, Brandon, Paulo Costa is going to have to show us he's the real, both in chin, 
in game plan and conditioning. But if he can, if this can end up being an even fight and not a fight that early we go, oh, wow, this may be too much too soon for Paulo Costa. You know, hey, Johnny Hendricks, good knockout win, but this ain't Yoel Romero. If he can prove that he's on the level of Yoel Romero, one thing Romero does, though, take some rounds off. He is 42, and he fights with explosion. And sometimes after an explosive round, He'll punt one. This is an opening in my eyes for Costa, the younger, fresher fighter, you could argue, over three rounds to have his moments, to weather the big storms, and if he can outpoint Yoel on the feet, not out-explode him, maybe not land the biggest telling shot of the fight, but outbox and control him on the feet, stay out of trouble, I think this is one of those where it goes to the scorecards and the younger fighter gets his hand raised. I may have been leaning back and forth all week. As of right now, I like Paul Acosta to prove to us, not just another pretty face, this guy is the future at middleweight. When you talk about taking rounds off, there's a hashtag on Twitter, third round Romero, and it's for a reason. Because, like you just said, if he has that explosive moment in the first round and then takes a little bit of a step back in the second, he comes out guns blazing in the third and throws everything but the kitchen sink at people. So to me, if Costa gets this done, it's got to be a knockout by the second round because I don't know if he's going to be able to survive that onslaught in the third round because we still haven't even seen him go that far. We haven't seen him in these deep waters before. I need to see Paulo Costa take this fight, try to outstrike with, with Yoel if he can, keep him on his feet, don't let the wrestling become a factor, and finish this in the first two rounds because I, I don't know how those muscles are going to hold up in the third round. Yeah, we are asking a lot of Paulo Costa in this fight, but this is why you like that fight. Deep end of the pool. There's nobody more dangerous, arguably, in the sport than Romero. Can't wait to see this. Now, quickly looking through the rest of the card, I want to really get what fight jumps out to you. For me, Brandon, it is that first opening fight on the pay-per-view portion of the card also in the middleweight division, when veteran Derek Brunson faces Ian Heinish. We know Heinish for that interesting backstory. Served time for, what, drug trafficking in Europe. Worked his way back. A native of Denver. Looked pretty good. Winning three fights in the UFC. Unbeaten in the octagon. Got through maybe some early gas tank issues. Showing you the strong wrestling base. Showing you the well-rounded game. This may not be a step-up fight on the level of Costa, but him moving up against Derek Brunson, we're going to find out right now for real, good story, good dude, or a real fighter in this division. I'm leaning to Heinish. I think he can get this done because Brunson at times has holes around his explosive nature. But this is going to be an interesting fight because Brunson certainly can wrestle on the ground. I want to see what we have in this guy. Yeah, that Antonio Carlos Jr. fight that he just won was really telling in what we can see from him soon. I think you're right. I think I would lean towards Ian Heinish as well, just because Derek Brunson's coming off a really tough loss to Israel Adesanya, and I would love to see what his chin looks like, honestly. like I don't know how, mu- how much he's going to be able to endure if Heinish starts putting pressure on him, because we just haven't seen him hold up well in those kinds of situations, so... I lean your way, and I lean with your boy uh, Jurassic back, as you like to call him, Ian Heinrich. That's what I'm talking about. He's got that jail bod. You can't get that chiseled unless you've done a little bit of time. I know I got the dad bod right now. I got to get. I got to <laughs> rotate out of that. Luckily, we had the uh, no cutoffs rule in the newsroom today, Brandon, so you couldn't be showing off those mm-hmm. tats. Suns out, guns out, right? That's how it works in South Florida. Give me a fight on this undercard that's getting you fired up. 
I got to go to the bantamweight division. I got to look at that Rafael, Rafael Asuncao and Corey Sandhagen because this is a real, like, true, uh, tell me who you are type fight for Corey Sandhagen because he is on the precipice of becoming a title challenger or at least entering that top five conversation. But he needs to get a big win like this against Rafael Asuncao, who's coming off a tough loss of his own against Marlon Marais. I think Sandhagen can get it done. He's got that very dominant Cruz-like mentality and ability when he gets into the octagon. He's very unorthodox, very different in, in terms of how he approaches fights with his style. I think he's able to get this done with a decision because Rafael Asuncao has been just such a difficult out for so many people. The only person I think in the last few years that's finished him was Marais in, in February this year. So I think... Sanhagen can get it done, and he becomes another player in an already loaded division. Such a loaded division. So much business to be done. Not even counting champion Henry Cejudo and his cringeworthiness and him calling out Valentina Shevchenko. No more on that. No news at 11. I don't want to get into that category, but I love this fight. Asuncao still showing you at 37. He still got it. And, yes, his only losses at the very elite level to the likes of Dillashaw and Marias. Can't wait to see that. Hey, Brandon, let's go to our picks. Let's throw it up there. I know I lean back and forth changing Costa and Romero every other hour. Let's see what we got here for this card. You're going upset. You're going Stipe right there. We're split on that co-main event. This is going to be a very interesting card. Top heavy. Some good fights, though, on the undercard to look forward to. And plenty of history at stake. Plenty of big business to come, especially if Nate Diaz can win that. Wow. Fire. You're getting me fired up. I'm fired up for Saturday night. I can't wait, man. It's going to be such a great show. I just, I get one of those feelings before these big events that something big will happen. And I really think it's going to be this weekend. And unsaid, look, this is Daniel Cormier's return to the Honda Center for the first time since that knockout loss to John Jones in the rematch in 2017 that obviously was later turned to a no contest. But that is your State of Combat UFC 241 preview. Please follow us on Twitter at State of Combat, at BrandonY65, at your boy B. Campbell, CBS. Check out our State of Combat podcast every week. Specific episodes focused on boxing, mixed martial arts, and pro wrestling. For Brandon Wise, I'm your boy BC. We are out. <laughs>